right. Well, I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Dr. Steve Fuller, who's a professor of sociology at Warwick University and the author of Humanity 2.0 and the Proactionary Imperative, a Foundation for Transhumanism. Um, thanks for joining me, uh, Dr. Fuller. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's talk about um, space arcs. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so this is probably a new concept for a lot of people. Um, Maybe can you just kind of um, explain what what the idea is and who's talking about it and and why? Okay, first of all, um, in terms of people wanting to find out more about this, so what we're talking about basically is a spaceship that would be uh, sufficiently self-propelling with regard to fuel that it would never have to land anywhere once it takes off from Earth. So in principle, it could be floating in space forever. So this is uh, the idea. Um, and this is the brainchild of a, of a, uh, a non-profit organization uh, called Icarus Interstellar. Okay, And people can look that up. And it's funded by both the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and also has other... Additional funders, including NASA and uh, DARPA, which is the Advanced Research uh, Division of the U- U.S. Defense Department. And I think the idea came about initially, uh, you might say, in terms of what, what might be necessary to do if there's a global climate catastrophe down the road, let's say sometime later in the, in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea would be, how could, you know, what would be necessary to keep something like a human civilization uh, floating indefinitely without any other sort of clear landing point. So the uh, the ark, I mean, it's called an ark, you know, obviously with a sort of veiled reference to Noah's ark, um, and uh, it would carry not only humans, maybe a few thousand humans, uh, so this would be quite a large ship, it would be the size of several football fields, um, but it would also carry species in various forms, not only uh, in, in their sort of living adult form, or, uh, but also DNA samples. In fact, loads of DNA samples. Um, and the expectation would be that over the course of this ship uh, floating around in the cosmos, there would be various kinds of experiments taking place, you know, new forms of life being bred. You know, so the, uh, the space arc would become its own kind of ecosystem, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so uh, it's, it's interesting from several different angles. Um, I, I mean, I think the fact that, that people are thinking about it as a kind of survival mechanism, I think that, that, that got the initial money up front. Mm-hmm. But I don't really think that's what's motivating the project from the standpoint of the people who are really actively engaged in it. I, I think they're, they're just much more interested in sort of the concept of there being a way in which the, the human condition and the aspects of Earth that have been necessary for that can be, as it were, projected indefinitely through the cosmos and not have to just remain planted on planet Earth. Hmm. So it's so there's kind of a survival edge to this. There is a um, a kind of visionary edge to it, where we're reaching out um, to to kind of extend human life, extend the reach of human civilization. Um, yes, and and, and so and there's kind of um, I, I guess the the concerns that are being brought up are in relation to. Um, potential environmental catastrophes, right? Like this, this is the conversation in which this kind of survival stuff is being talked about. Yes, I think I don't think. Well, as you you probably know, there has not been uh, a large amount of incentive to revive a human-based space program, right? Yeah, I mean, right. most of the space probes that have been very adventurous in in the last oh thirty years or more, right, have been unmanned, um, and so uh, it's been in this context that a kind of uh, that in a sense, a lot of the sort of old ambitions about humanity projecting itself on the cosmos have been revived. Yes, environmental catastrophe has done it. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I was I was just speculating about this um, the the other day about whether you know coming out of like we've had so much of our space program has been driven by um, like things like the Cold War. And uh, that was kind of the initial impetus for a lot of this is, you know, we've got to get there before um, the Russians do or, or, you know, however that was framed. But um, and and we now live in a in a time past that kind of really um, epic 
unifying war. And I, I've wondered if, you know, the environmental um, uh, kind of imperative or, or, or mission there might be that kind of a thing, might be unifying enough to draw people into these kinds of projects. Yes, I think that's exactly right, actually. I mean, one, one of the things um, that was very interesting about the Cold War when the space program got, or the space race, as it were, right, between the U.S. and the USSR, um, was that uh, there was a sense in which these two powers were going to project alternative visions of humanity across the cosmos, hmm. right? So there yeah. were actually debates at the time about, you know, uh, if the Russians were to land on the moon first, would they own it? Would they be able to make it communist, right? I mean, th right. there was actually discussions of this kind uh, going on, and, 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 and there is a kind of residue of that discussion, actually, that goes on in the United Nations to this day with regard to uh, how do you set up property development in outer space? Who owns what, you know? Uh, yeah. that, 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 uh, but the interesting thing about the environmental problem, of course, is that all of humanity gets kind of united together, you might say, against uh, the common foe being the earth as it were the earth revolting against what you know what what a lot of people see to be you know anthropogenic climate change right that is a man-made mm -hmm. climate change that really disturbs the ecosystem in such a radical way as to threaten our survival on the planet right hmm. so there there's controversy about this right and, or at least there's there's criticism about it and and i think what I saw was your response to some of the criticism that had been leveled at um, this art concept. And yes. So what's the what's the basis of the criticism? What are what's what's being criticized in this? Well, I, I guess the criticism comes from two directions, um, and and um, sometimes uh, the same people are making them, but I think they're two quite distinct criticisms. Um, one of them has to do with the fact that, you know, let's say this thing was to come about, that, that actually we would have need for such a spaceship because of survival issues. Mm -hmm. um, the people who would be on this spacecraft are bound to be rich people or people with talent. You know, in other words, uh, this is kind of an elitist plot to kind of uh, abandon Earth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. And if you recall the, the, the film, the recent film Elysium, yeah. okay, right? I mean, so so I do think that there's a sense about you know, who exactly is this for at the end of the day? It's, it's, it's being promoted as being on behalf of all of humanity and saving humanity, but in fact the, uh, aspect, the, the, the aspects or the parts of humanity that would actually benefit from this are, seem most likely to be quite restricted. So, so that's, there's that criticism. Um, the other criticism, which you might say is a kind of more metaphysical criticism, uh, is that this very idea of thinking about human beings as somehow... Um, you know, maybe having been born on Earth, but not necessarily destined to remain on Earth, is, is a kind of very dangerous fantasy, which involves lots of hubris, you know, that human beings are somehow godlike and can just live anywhere they feel like it, um, and, and that uh, there is a certain kind of, um, you know, a certain kind of view that I think is quite popular among people who identify themselves as ecologists, which at the end of the day basically say, look, Human beings are just animals, okay? And they have the same needs and the same capacities as animals, which is to say that they are adapted to live on planet Earth. And Darwin basically figured out how that was done. Uh, and insofar as we start to imagine ourselves as somehow transcending that form of existence, uh, we are not only endangering ourselves through a sort of uh, self-delusion, but we're also endangering the rest of nature, which in a sense never, you know, never received consent from us to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so th I think this comes down to the philosophical um, issue, which you've, I think you've taken um, issue with. And maybe this is where the upwing and downwing kind of um, philosophies come in. So could you kind of yeah. uh, unpa unpack that? For, I'm sure most people don't know what upwing no. and downwing is. Exactly. So. But, but, but this is exactly right. I mean, in terms of the, the framing, you might say, of, of, of how I think about this matter when we get to the more philosophical aspects. Um, I mean, we live in a period now, it seems to me, and this is a point that I argue in the Proactionary Imperative book, where human beings are being torn in two quite different directions. Um, on the one hand, I think there is a very strong movement to re-embed humans on Earth and to see us as Earth-bound creatures. 
Um, and, and this is typically done kind of in the name of humans becoming more modest, more humble, taking greater responsibility for care of the planet. Uh, we normally think about this as a very sort of green orientation. And this is what I call in the book uh, downwingers. Because basically, uh, they are focused very much on humans staying on Earth and that our fate, for better or worse, will be on Earth. Um, there is no, as it were, afterlife and there is no, there is no kind of humanity 2.0, really. I mean, there's just the human being as Homo sapiens. On the other hand, however, we have this other group of people, and this group of people are quite a mixed bag, um, but they're the people I call upwingers and, and with whom I identify. Um, and they include the sort of people who see the space arc as a kind of attractive idea, at least at the conceptual level. Uh, and there are also people who are much more open to uh, technological enhancement and even transformation of the human body uh, through various prosthetic devices, cyborgs, you know, which are these hybrids between humans and machines. And even in the more radical cases, people who talk about the uploading of consciousness um, as a way uh, for... Uh, a certain kind of human mind to exist indefinitely, um, you know, the kind of thing uh, that was, re you know, if you re recall the movie with Johnny Depp, uh, Transcendence. Yeah. Um, this kind of uh, attitude. And, and this is a broad range of people, but what they all share is the idea that just because we began as Homo sapiens from a strictly biological evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't follow that we need to remain there indefinitely in order to survive and flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's so uh, you've kind of contrasted this with the left right spectrum. That's right. And we typically think of um, of politics uh, as this very linear sort of thing between you know between left and right, and even kind of just a, a binary division. Um, but you're suggesting there there's um, this entirely different dimension that cr cuts across uh, that's those right. political divides. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, if you think about the left and the right, uh, which have existed as the sort of defining poles of political life for the, the last 200 more years, goes back to the French Revolution, this distinction, um, both, both sides, both poles have always been kind of, had, have had internal contradictions, you might say, and you can even see this in contemporary politics. So let's look at the right wing, for example. What kind of people are on the right wing typically? Well... You've got people who are in who are kind of traditionalists, people we would call conservatives, people who are you know are about family values in that sort of sense. Um, you know, uh, conventionally religious people, perhaps, but also we call libertarians people on the on the right. Mm -hmm. Okay, people who are very much against the state, who are very much pro freedom, um, and and these two groups of people kind of sit very uh, uneasily together. And it's actually quite interesting to see somebody, you know, in terms of American politics, like Rand Paul, trying to kind of square the two. Right. Because he's got a foot kind of in both camps, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, the, that's the, uh, the right side, how the right side has a kind of internal contradiction. And, and part of what I argue in the book is that the libertarian side goes upwinger, while the more kind of traditional side goes downwinger on this. So that's how the right splits apart. Now, in the case of the left... You've got two kinds of visions from the left. On the one hand, you have what you might call a kind of big government, technocratic, progressive kind of idea that wants to radically transform people um, and, and will do it. And, you know, and this is associated with a kind of more um, kind of aggressively uh, socialist, maybe welfare state kind of left, the kind of left of someone like Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Uh, but then you also have a kind of more... What, what would be called a communitarian left, a kind of more grassroots uh, with affiliations to, let's say, the anarchist movement um, that, is very, that is also quite suspicious of government um, but, and, and so believes that people basically have to take control of themselves from sort of the bottom-up level. Um, and there, too, you could see a split where the, the more technocratic side of the left is actually quite attracted uh, to the kind of upwinging agenda whereas the more communitarian side is more downwinging. Yeah. And so I think uh, in, in terms of the way the world is now, in terms of the political scene, somebody like Pope Francis, okay, Pope Francis, the Catholic Pope, um, is a very, very good example 
of a kind of downwinger who understands both the left aspect and the right aspect of downwinging. So he's the great champion of the poor, he's the great champion of the environment, but he does this all very much within a fairly traditional conservative philosophical framework with regard to what the, his ultimate views are about the nature of humanity. He is not, he's a guy who's very interested in saving the poor, but he doesn't want to put them in space. Right. <laughs> Interesting. So do you think that, um, so, you know, you've given an example of what you're saying is kind of a cooperation between um, the downwing side on both the left and right spectrum. That's right. Do you think there's a potential for cooperation on the upwing side between bo across both left and right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do. In fact, in a sense, this is kind of what my own position is. I think this is the way to go. It's basically that way. Mm -hmm. And and I think the problem we face at the moment, and I think we see this very clearly, is if you think about the upwingers who are libertarians, the kind of Silicon Valley crowd, those people actually have a bunch of very interesting ideas about how to reorganize things and so forth, but they are very suspicious of the state. Um, they tend to be, in fact, very anti-state, very much like traditional libertarians, and, and so, within their vision, it's not clear how you would end up incorporating everyone into it. it you know, in, in other words, you can imagine that there would be these various kind of Silicon Valley-style utopias where all these kind of new forms of society take place, with all these kind of hybrid relations forming, but most of the rest of humanity could be left out in the cold. Um, and this is where I think the kind of larger, what was historically a more socialist vision, becomes very important. Namely, the idea that you've got to take all of humanity with you up to the next level. That yeah. you need some kind of notion of, of moral and political uplift for all of humanity, not just for the ones who come up with the bright ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, from a Christian standpoint, that's uh, an incredibly significant uh, part of this is to to talk about inclusion and um, and embrace across this kind of big spectrum of humanity. And when we talk to you know a lot of different people in in the transhumanists camp or in um, or people people kind of looking at transhumanism, a lot of times what they get is a sense that that's not you know that's not on the table. That's not a possibility. That it that inevitably talking about moving technology forward in a significant way involves leaving people behind. And you mentioned, you mentioned that yourself, like the, you know, the space arc, um, are we only going to put the elite on there? Right. Is it going to be an Elysium situation? So how do you think we, how do, how do you think we work against that? How do you think we include, um, everyone and, and bring everyone into that project? Well, I think the first thing we need to do and, uh, we may get to talk about this guy Zoltan Istvan, yeah. right? Who's the presidential candidate for the uh, the uh, self-made transhumanist party? Correct. Um, yeah. Is that it, it becomes very important? It seems to me for the the transhumanist goals, which I think at the moment I think you're correct are primarily being articulated from within a libertarian political framework, to actually be taken up in the mainstream politics, right? So, so uh, because that's kind of the first, uh, it seems to me that's the first step toward getting a more inclusive kind of agenda. Because insofar as we still have, you know, uh, progressive states or at least progressive politicians who want to use the state as a vehicle for lifting up people, um, it seems to me that, that that is the, as it were, the audience that needs to be picking up on all of these more advanced ideas. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in this respect, I think Zoltan Istvan. Um, is doing an interesting job here because, he, you know, when he starts, you know, he, he picks up on this very signature transhumanist thing of immortality, right? That the, that the government should uh, provide the means by which people can live indefinitely. Yeah. Now, now, that's a very recognizably transhumanist thing, but normally it's interpreted in a very individualistic, very libertarian way. Um, you know, uh, and, and one imagines once again that there will be certain kinds of, you know, uh, gene therapies or cryonics or something like this that only very rich people will have access to to be able to realize that goal. Yeah. But, but, but Istvan is actually talking about this in terms of a kind of an agenda for, uh, you know, a national health service, as we would say in Britain, right? Some kind of, you know, uh, something that, that uh, a state-based medical system might want to promote as a goal yeah. and so he you know so he argues 
And again, it's not that I necessarily agree with how he wants to square this, but I think in a sense, he, this is an example of how you get it into the mainstream. So he says, cut the defense budget, pull American troops out of all of the, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, all the various places where there's American military uh, presence, and, and instead reinvest that money into the biomedical research that is likely to make it, avail make it possible for everyone, you know, as a matter of routine to be able you know, to reverse the aging process and all the other things that are involved in trying to uh, have people live indefinitely. Mm. And, and I think that that's a kind of step, you know, that's the in a sense, that's the kind of thinking that actually is necessary, namely taking these goals that on the surface look very elitist and then trying to make them, you know, democratize them, make it possible for everyone to participate in them. Yeah. Yeah, I... I I agree with that. Um, so let yeah, let's just jump in and, and talk about the kind of um, the politics of this, and um, because I think um, I think there is a lot of of um, of I don't, I don't know how to say this conf conflict around um, Zoltan Istvan, and um, you know I think people who would want to support him are. Uh, very conflicted about that um, for s some reasons we can kind of unpack. Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to get your kind of take on, on all of that um, from that angle. Okay. Um, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think the, in a sense, well, first of all, when I, when I first heard about his candidacy, because I had previously known about him as this uh, science fiction writer, the transhumanist Correct. wager. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I saw he was running for president um, and he started putting out a lot of his proposals, I immediately sent him a, a rather long message, um, you know, basically saying what I liked and didn't like about his uh, platform. And one of the things that I picked up on was this kind of militant atheism, which I thought was completely unnecessary and in a way kind of really kind of confused his own message in a sense. Um, and um, but in a sense, I can sort of. I think I think it's a kind of a, a kind of political tactic that he's using, yeah. um, and and recently uh, the um, the transhumanist party in the UK had its annual general meeting, and I was invited to speak with a journalist from Britain who's been following Istvan in in his coffin bus across America. Right, <laughs> um, and and we were talking about the various strategies that he's been using, and and I think I think Istvan thinks that the natural audience for what he has to say is a kind of new atheist audience. You know, that is to say an audience that sort of flatters itself as being ultra-modern and, you know, beyond any kind of illusions or superstitions and are quite willing to have public policy just directed by whatever science and technology is at the cutting edge. And that that's kind of the cool view, you know? It's kind of like the, you know, you have a kind of extreme politics to go along with the extreme sports, which is kind of the way he <laughs> decks himself out on the campaign trail. Right. You know, so I think, but, but I think that in fact, you know, that's not, that, that's a very superficial um, way of going about trying to promote the transhumanist method, message. And of course, he's gotten a lot of blowback from Christian transhumanists, uh, you know, Mormon transhumanists and, and others and, 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 um, and I think that that kind of infighting in, in the transhumanist community, given that it's not the largest community in the world, right. um, is, is just totally unproductive. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I can give um, a little bit of, of commentary on that because um, I did read the transhumanist wager and, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's in the, the vein of, of a lot of things which are, kind of entertaining to read, but are not, you know, you don't really think of as very heavyweight or whatever, you know, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can kind of flip through it and, and, um, it, uh, but it paints a, a very, very, um, pr incredibly, uh, cartoonish version of, of, uh, religious people and, um, and then sets out to, to destroy them. And, um, so there's a, you know, there's a thing uh, seen near the end where, um, you know, because the religious people have provoked him, the central character sends out um, missiles or something like that and, and basically blows up the Vatican and blows up all the kind of religious icons in the world and, um, and destroys 
all kinds of people. And um, it's a very extreme kind of vision there, right? And it's yes. it, it's very, um, very scary if you take it, you know, take it uh, to any extent serious. It's kind of like the left behind novels of the yeah. uh, of the atheist transhumanist, I guess. But um, but uh, and so then, you know, then kind of publicly um, Zoltan has has kind of made um, has been um, more uh, kind of open-ended to religious people, but then kind of um, also gone on the attack a lot and um, posited uh, that transhumanism and religion were kind of locked in this battle. And so he suggested at one point that atheists shouldn't have to go through airport screening, but religious people should. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, that was awful. I know. Why does he say stuff like this? <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's just you know kind of say, saying something inflammatory maybe but um, but uh, so so there's that and then you know and then um, he, yeah he he's presented transhumanism as being uh, fundamentally held back by religion so that you know it's a matter of kind of getting rid, rid of of religion to kind of move us forward and um, you know the the. Mormon transhumanist and Christian transhumanist I know are not uh, bothered by the fact that he's an atheist, but they're bothered by the fact that he's presenting this as the the prime kind of division. That this yeah. is actually the the war that needs to be fought between yeah. religious people and transhumanists. And that's wrong. That is definitely wrong. He did that is not the war. Yeah. Because in this respect. The, the, the Mormon and Christian transhumanists and guys like Zoltan are all upwingers. They're yeah. all on the same side. That's not the, the war to fight is with downwingers. Yeah. Not with up, not, you know, and, and I think that's the, that's the lesson that he needs to learn, I think. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, and in a sense, I mean, I think the, the reason why there's all this heat generated between him and, 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 and the Christians and the Mormon transhumanists is because. You know, in a sense, Zoltan's own kind of self-understanding of what the sort of transhumanist apotheosis is like is kind of the mirror. It's kind of based on the Abrahamic thing, yeah. Right, where, where there is a very, a very strong, positive kind of association made with being human. Mm -hmm. That there is something godlike about being human. That is not an arbitrary assumption. That is an assumption that is rooted in the Abrahamic tradition. And in a sense, what he does is he basically desacralizes it, but he keeps it, right? Yeah. He keeps he keeps the basic assumption, and this is where he's he and the and the uh, Christians and the Mormon transhumanists are on the same side against the people who don't think that human beings are special at all. The people who think that human beings are just one among many species living on the planet with no special entitlement, right? And yeah. Yeah, so like I, you know, I think that um, I've I've seen transhumanism as this kind of attempt to secularize uh, Christianity. Um, do you agree with with that? Oh yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, in fact, I would say you know the way I would present it historically, and 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 I do think one of the things that in general we need to do, those of us who are sympathetic to transhumanism, is to normalize the place of transhumanism in in Western intellectual history. And I basically see it, if you think about the Enlightenment as having, Christ, uh, as, as having secularized Christianity, right, then this is the next phase. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's the next phase. So what, what drives that? What, you know, why is there, why did we want to do that with the Enlightenment? And why, did, why are we wanting to do that uh, with, with transhumanism? What's driving the, I guess, the persistence of these Christian ideas outside of what we would think of as their original context. Well, uh, I mean, I think uh, people do take very, I, I do think the thing that is common to this entire, from, from, from the Christian origins to, it, to Zoltan, which is common to all of the whole tradition, uh, is uh, taking very seriously and very literally, I guess, the idea that we're creating the image and likeness of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how do you cash that out? Um, <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and that's where the disagreements begin, really. 
Um, and that's where we're talking, and that's why this is the history of upwinging, because upwinging basically starts with the fundamental assumption in Genesis that we're creating the image and likeness of God, and then where do we go from there? And I think what you see, beginning with the Enlightenment, and I think in a way, Zoltan is in a way reenacting this for the 21st century, is a kind of belief that uh, institutionalized forms of belief, you know, churches in particular, Mm-hmm. are really the problem, that the churches hold people back from fully realizing their godlike potential, right? We already see this operating in the Protestant Reformation against the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. In the 16th century, that's already there. The Enlightenment does it the next stage by basically distancing itself from all churches, right? And, you know, and then you get guys starting in the 19th century, Nietzsche being the most important one, I suppose, and, and continuing on to Zoltan, Basically, then distancing the oneself from God altogether, or at least trying to. Right. Uh, I think that that's actually pretty impossible to do. But I think that that's kind of the progression that we're, you know, a kind of distrust of, of institutionalized forms of, of 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 realizing this this vast godlike human potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is interesting. That is um, such a profound move. I've, I think I saw you comment in in um, another place about um, the the proliferation of different sciences that we're that we're seeing now where everyone kind of wants a bit of science for their, themselves and are pursuing it in a different way and we're seeing that as this kind of splintering uh, similar to the <laughs> the Protestant Reformation yes I, I think that's that by the way that is very important for understanding how transhumanism works okay? Because uh, I talk about this in terms of what I call prot science, Protestant science. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, science, you know, has become in a way kind of a universal church, the way in which Catholicism was up to the time of the Reformation. But now we're seeing, uh, as a result of the Internet, primarily, I think, but also with, you know, general greater education and so forth, um, that people are taking science into their own hands, just like they took the Bible into their own hands. Yeah. And they're and, and they're pushing it in various ways. They're reading it in certain ways, interpreting it for themselves. And so you wouldn't really see transhumanism would never get off the ground if people just stuck with the official scientific accounts of things. Okay, mm-hmm. because then stuff like cryonics, stuff like living forever, you know, all of these things, the, these these are not the sort of things that respectable scientists spend a lot of time talking about. Right. Okay, it's it's when you see the potential in the science. You know, and you look at it in the long term, and we're, and you know, and in a sense, how do you invest your faith in science? Where do you want it to go? Right? When you start to think of science in that respect as kind of the replacement of religion, is where transhumanism starts to get some purchase. Because just about every signature uh, belief that transhumanists have is actually quite heterodox from the standard scientific standpoint. Mm-hmm. Just like the Protestants, you know, would have been called heretics, right, in, in, in previous generations. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is kind of the way to see this, you know, the development that we're living through now with transhumanism. Hmm. Yeah, we, from a kind of scientific uh, standpoint, you see, um, you see the, the rise of the quantified self movement and things yes. like that, um, or N equals one, where, where instead of the, um, instead of the kind of traditional, uh, double-blind studies where we have vast numbers of people. It's people just experimenting with themselves as the only subject, and right. um, trying to de- deduce, like you know, um, scientifically um, what truths are are uh, applicable to themselves and maybe only to themselves. Well, that's right. Yes, in fact, uh, there is a. I mean, I think that. In, in bio- I mean, this is even happening in biology where, where people are re-engineering organisms and things like that. It's called, it's called it's, in biology, it's called DIY bio, yeah. okay? <laughs> and and that, that is a term that's actually used to discuss a lot of the ways in which advances in synthetic biology are being made these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this is kind of what you're talking about, the DIY movement within all of science. Um, and I think that's a very interesting and a very... Uh, a, a very, a generally speaking, a very positive development for people who have a kind of transhumanist mentality. Um, but you see, um, I think there are a couple of issues here, and this is something I touch on in in, in uh, the proactionary imperative. Um, uh, when we are when we do talk about this self experimentation stuff, you know, from an academic standpoint, um, 
a lot of it is kind of um, illegal, or at least not fully legal, because there is officially quite a lot of restrictions on the kind of research that can take place, let's say, in universities with regard to studying human beings. Okay, yeah. and and I tend to th and and so very often this kind of research you're talking about, you know, people who are experimenting with various kinds of drugs that may be prescribed for one purpose, but perhaps could also be used to you know boost your memory or something like this. Um, that that this this kind of stuff is really not completely legal. So there's a kind of disincentive at the moment, you know, through through kind of potential criminalization about people being engaged in this, which I think needs to be removed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there needs to be a kind of decriminalization of self experimentation. But I think but I think if you if you uh, have that, which I believe we should, then you also have to be prepared for people making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of self harm, um, and 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 that's and that's usually why the stuff people want to criminalize it in the first place is the potential for the harm. Um, but I think what we need then is an adequate system of compensation, and we need to be public about this. That's the other thing that I think is part of. If we're going to have people, as it were, experimenting with science in lots of ways and using themselves as guinea pigs, um, then it, it shouldn't be criminal, uh, but also it should be public. So that people can learn, everyone can learn from the consequences, and yeah. I think this this is a this is a very important part of the equation because um, it's one of the reasons, in fact, why science became this kind of organized activity focused on journals and things like this is because people were trying out all kinds of things, but how do you know what someone's done? How do you know what works? What doesn't work? Right? You need some kind of central pooling of information in a free and public space. Um, and I think that's got to be part of, of the agenda as well. But one of the things that I worry about is that people are so, um, they're so obsessed these days with privacy, okay, yeah. um, and protecting one's space and all this, um, that in fact there's a very strong drive against people going public with results, especially if they end up looking bad. Hmm. Hmm. That's, I think, a big problem with this, you know, so, um, so, so I do believe uh, it's it's from a legal and political standpoint. I think there's a lot to be managed here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you're talking about the kind of risks, and you know, we we don't get the opportunities without the risks, right? Um, That's right. And you you've kind of framed faith as as a position within this. Can can you kind of expand on on the way you think about faith and what it is? Yes, I think faith is basically a uh, a very proactive attitude toward uncertainty. Okay, mm -hmm. so when one, you know, I mean, we, I, I think this is fairly familiar from the theological tradition, from Pascal or Kierkegaard, you know, the leap of faith. Yeah. Right. Um, when one talks about the leap of faith, um, you know, it's 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 positive, yeah. right? But it's treating uncertainty in a positive way rather than as a source of fear. Mm -hmm. Okay, because of course, if you don't if, if something is uncertain and you cannot predict with certainty what will happen, right, there is a tendency, and this is the tendency that, that uh, you know, historically one associates with animals, is not to take the risk, right. right? Rather to stay in the comfort zone, stay in the safe zone, stay in what you already know. Do not go beyond, okay? But faith is basically having a positive attitude toward uncertainty. Hmm. And so that's why I think, you know, and, and I think transhumanism d is full of faith in this respect, right? It's just full of it. Um, I mean, because the kinds of things, you know, so you think about stuff like um, the cryonics business, okay? So here we have this idea that shortly after you die, right, you get put into deep freeze, okay? Uh, and that somehow you're going to be revived and you'll be able to relive your life or something like this, okay? Um now that's amazing. Okay, that's an amazing thing to believe, actually. Okay, and 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 people say, but ah, but this is scientifically based. Sure, you know it, it is, but it's still kind of a, an amazing thing because there's no certainty this is actually going to be brought about. But I'll tell you, I mean, I think it'll be an interesting test of transhumanism that if you bring down the price of cryonics, which is very expensive at the moment, only very rich people can afford it. Uh, how many people will go? You might get quite a number of people who will take, put their faith in this. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and so that's faith, too. You see, this is why, you know, when, uh, when somebody like Zoltan 
starts to complain about religion, uh, one has to get very careful about what exactly is he complaining about, because he certainly can't be complaining about faith, because right. faith is something that transhumanists have in droves. Yeah. <laughs> right? Especially, and, and you can see this from the standpoint of a conventional scientist who thinks that a lot of the stuff that transhumanists are trying to pursue just will never happen. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the the case. The first time I ever heard about cryonics was um, uh, its dismissal for, by you know by a a, a normal scientist um, who was you know kind of talking about some of the difficulties of um, you know dealing with what happens at you know at at certain kinds of temperatures. And um, so yeah, the first I think the first reaction that most people would have to this is to say well this is just not plausible it's not you know it's it's kind of um it's not it's not believable or it's it's ludicrous or something like that and um the yeah there is something that is driving a certain amount of people to say you know what i'm going to go after this anyway yeah <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, even even against all the odds, or or you know, and and I think there's there's a a very common attitude across society that that I continually find baffling. But that attitude is that um, we can't really expect much to change, and so they talk about something like cryonics or AI or something like that, and they say. They say essentially, well, right now computers aren't fast enough for that, or um, you know, right now thing that we don't have the conditions for that, and they accept that as as just that's the end of the the discussion. Um, and it's a weird position because you know everything has changed so much just in the last one hundred years to to anticipate that you know the way things are is the way they'll always be is a pretty extreme position but it's still a common position and um and there is some kind of psychological switch i think that has to happen before people say well no we can start thinking about how things might be different significantly and what that might mean yes uh, no I, I i agree with you i mean this is where i think it is always helpful this is to my mind, the main reason why people should study history, mm -hmm. because because if you know history, and especially if you know the history of science and technology, you know things can change very quickly. Yeah. Um, and 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 s the other thing that I would point out, um, you know, as a kind of a background condition for this kind of disruptive change we're we're talking about, is of course generational change. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and um, I think it's fair to say that if you're dealing with people who are established in professional careers, even in science, um, and they're middle-aged, you know, um, th they actually have a vested interest in things remaining more or less the same uh, from the standpoint of giving meaning to the kinds of things they've spent their lives developing. Yeah. Um, and so the very idea that there might be some radical change around the corner that kind of displaces what they've been working on and change and radically changes the assumptions of the playing field of the field they're in. Um, I think that's actually very difficult for people, you know, who are established to get their heads around, but I think it's much easier for someone who is beginning their career, doesn't have all these commitments already, uh, you know, and in a sense realizes that if they're going to make their own mark, they're probably going to have to embrace something that's somewhat different from what their, you know, their pre precursors did. Yeah. Um, and and so you, you one should not underestimate the role of generational change in terms of making people more open and uh, you know and more receptive to radical transformations. Hmm. Yeah. So kind of connected to the you know idea of like faith in science. Um, you've talked about. Um, science as as having to do with providence yeah yeah can you explain yeah. that <laughs> yeah i mean i mean the, ba the 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 basic idea here it's a you know providence is a kind of broadly speaking calvinist idea um and uh, it, it's that uh, it, it's basically trying to explain what's the relationship uh between uh people trying to uh improve themselves, get themselves out of original sin, as it were, whatever, uh, make progress in the human condition, um, and, um, you know, God's 
relationship to that, uh, because uh, it, it isn't that God is telling people what to do directly. That's not how it works. We have free will, uh, and, and we are allowed to make our own errors and so forth. But nevertheless, uh, there is some sense in which um, God might be seen as giving a sign as to when we're heading sort of in the right direction. And, and the point that I would make historically is that the kinds of conceptions that we have of scientific progress and how it gets achieved are actually derived from these notions of providence which were very pr prominent in the way in which Christianity was developing during the Enlightenment, okay? And was especially very strongly uh, uh, involved in the American founding fathers, both the ones who, uh, the ones who came over from Plymouth in England, uh, you know, on the Mayflower, those people, um, but also uh, the uh, founding fathers of the of the American Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So the basically 17th, 18th century people, Providence was a very strong kind of idea. Of course, the capital of Rhode Island is called Providence, and 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 no, the modern modern scientific notions of progress come from this. And and what what uh, what in particular is is characteristic that comes from Providence is this idea that um, the way you make progress is by testing claims, let's say, experimentally, uh, and, you know, a claim is, you know, and, and your experiment works or it doesn't work, but it doesn't establish the truth once and for all. At most, what it does is it gives you a direction. It tells you you have to move one way or another way, but it doesn't actually give you the absolute truth. You have to keep on inquiring, you have to keep on probing, but you also have to have faith that your your various probes and tests and all the various stages that you make are actually heading in a direction that will eventually get you to the point you want to be at. Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of faith, as it were, where you are always operating under a kind of partial cloud, where you, where in a sense you, you kind of know whether what you've done is right and wrong, but you still have to figure out what was right and wrong about it. Mm -hmm. That this is very much part of the scientific method, okay? Um, and, uh, and 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 this this is a kind of this kind of way of, of a kind of self criticism, but nevertheless a form of self criticism where you feel you can make progress. This is actually coming from the uh, from the theological doctrine of providence, which was supposed to inspire right all of these people taking great risks with their lives, you know, growing going across the seas, hmm. you know, uh, and 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 then you know, as it were, taking the hardships that they suffer as somehow providing signs. Of what's the right and what's the wrong thing to do in the future? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That that's uh that kind of brings to mind yeah this image of of okay so yeah you said you know people going across the sea taking these big risks um, in the name of, of providence essentially and it kind of connects back to the space arc idea um, yeah. you know people yeah. going out in in pursuit of new worlds um, and you know, with the with a, a sort of trust that there is something, um, you know, there there is a next step and a next step after that. Exactly, that's right. It's a very positive view, and it's and the reason why, uh, in a sense, providence kind of fell out of favor as a theological concept, um, and and um, and this is something that that did come up in this uh, discussion that I was having about the space art, is that in a sense. Uh, providence can be used to justify an enormous amount of suffering, okay, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, you know, and this is actually what did happen, of course, when all of those settlers came across the Atlantic. There was lots of death and disease and problems, and then settling in Massachusetts in the first year was a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and yet, you know, people saw, they, they tried to learn from this. They tried to see all of this, all these bad things as somehow pointing in positive directions that they can learn from. And, and that was kind of their general attitude. It was always very positive, even yeah. when things were going badly. And, that, and that's very much the, the hallmark of having a kind of providential view toward your relationship to God. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've wondered about, um, you know, we've, we've experienced in, you know, the last several centuries a lot of scientific progress and um, you might say a lot of scientific fortune. You know, we, we were able to discover um, some solutions to some fairly big issues um, in a fairly routine, you know, manner, right? And, and right. it kind of led up through Einstein and then the development of quantum physics, um, the, all these kind of physics breakthroughs. 
and we continue to have scientific uh, breakthroughs, but we, you know, uh, in certain kinds of science seem to stall for a while. And yeah. hypothetically, you know, there's there's no real reason at the outset that we wouldn't say, you know, we might hit a thousand year period where we make no scientific progress because it's such a, you know, there's such a big gap between this step and the next step. And I've wondered if, um, you know, if we face something of that kind of difficulty, you know, would we be able to ma- maintain the the confidence in in continuing to investigate, or would we give up and kind of maybe give up on the scientific method altogether, and you know, and just kind of abandon that quest? Um, I guess I do. I mean, I think if. I mean, I do think there is always an open question about whether we will continue to make science uh, and technological, scientific and technological progress. Yeah. But I don't think that will be the way that, that that's kind of how the problem arises. I think the problem actually arises from, uh, you might say, a lack of faith. Um, mm. in, 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 and, you know, I was alluding to earlier about the amount of restrictions that are placed on research having to do with human beings. And, of course, this is being extended to animals as well. And, and, and a lot of that kind of uh, what, what, you know, gets called in the literature precautionary measures uh, that are taken has a lot to do with the, the, the negative side of science and technology's track record. So if you think about, you know, Nazi eugenics, for example, uh, basically set the tone for yeah. establishing all of the kind of human subjects guidelines that we now see today first in biomedical research, but also in social research as well. Um, you know, and of course, people also have had doubts, uh, you know, for quite a long time about nuclear energy in light of the atomic bomb and the threat of nuclear war and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and, and so I do think that the kind of, a kind of loss of faith, I think, is always kind of in the background, given that the track record of science, you know, even when it's making all of these great breakthroughs you, you, you mentioned, right, the way these breakthroughs then get played out in practice Right, are you know, have a lot of negative consequences, and no one can really deny this, right? And in a sense, you might say, you know, if you look at the global the, the global climate problem that we're suffering from now, um, that's kind of the cumulative effect of industrialization, which is when science and technology start to get applied in a very concentrated way toward the transformation of nature and society, starting in the late 18th century. Um, And this is the downstream effect, the kind of global climate problems we have. So, you know, an argument could be made that, um, you know, that there there is a kind of gradual kind of moral backlash that's developing against science and technology that might actually restrict progress, including the kind of progress that would enable us to solve a lot of these problems, even if they were caused by science and technology. Hmm. So so do you think that it's just... Um, it's just that these kind of negatives have built up to a certain point, or is there something else driving that loss of faith? Um, well, I, well, I think, uh, again, this is very much tied, I think this is very much tied up with a, a kind of, uh, of, of these changes that are taking place in human self-understanding. What does it mean to be a human being? Mm-hmm. Because I do think that if you, if you do take seriously the idea that as human beings we have some godlike potential, then I think it's relatively easy uh, to take a kind of providential approach and say, yes, you know, all these atrocities happened and they were very bad, uh, but there's a sense in which we need to learn from this and move forward, uh, but not to necessarily, you know, stop everything altogether, okay? However, if you believe, on the other hand, that human beings are just animals and that, we are, and that, and that we're not as clever as we think we are, uh, and that in some sense... All of these catastrophes that we've that we've encountered with science and technology is, in a sense, pointing up to our finitude, pointing out to the fact that look, at the end of the day, we're just upright apes, and that all of these things that we've tried to work on, like trying to you know uh, understand the nature of the gene and trying to understand the nature of the atom, that this is you know uh, above our pay grade, as it were. You know that we're not we're not entitled to look into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just animals and, you know, and, and so not surprisingly, when we start to g- study 
the more ambitious stuff that gets us to the fundamentals of all things, whether it be life or matter or whatever, we end up running into all kinds of problems from a moral standpoint. Um, and you see, I think that's kind of the issue. You know, what is a human being at the end of the day? Is a human being a potential god or is a human being just a slightly clever animal? Yeah. I think that's kind of what it boils down to. And I think it's easy to take a more fearful approach to science and technology if you just say we're just lucky apes. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the imposter syndrome for the whole human species. Um, and, yeah, yeah, uh, that's what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, imposter syndrome being uh, a lot of times people in their careers feel like they don't really belong there. They don't really deserve to to ha have it have... Um, you know they're not really as qualified as other people think they are, and um, and that's a that's a big problem for a lot of people. It's a pretty common issue, um, and it, that's kind of the same thing here. That we're we're saying okay, as a human species, we did amazing things, but you know we really aren't as great as we think we are. We're really not um, cut out for this stuff. We're just reaching beyond what we should have been uh, contained to. Well, that's right. In, fa in fact, Darwin, Darwin actually says something explicit on this point because uh, he used, when he was traveling on the Beagle, he, uh, you know, in Tierra del Fuego, in the, in the tip of Latin America, he, um, he ran across these, uh, these so-called savages, uh, and, and they were very warlike and everything, uh, and, he was and so he contrasts them with apes, okay? And he said the apes are very peaceful, but the problem with these savages, and he says this is the thing that's going to undermine humanity altogether, is they get these fixed ideas. You know, in other words, human beings, uh, unlike apes, uh, as it were, do not know how to discipline their, uh, their powers of abstraction. Hmm. And so they become fixated on ideas, right? And these ideas then lead them to go to war, you know, between tribes in this case. Uh, but one could, you know, kind of see this kind of... Um, skepticism about whether we can be redeemed by science and technology sort of in similar terms namely that you know we become so infatuated by our powers of abstraction you know our use our ability to manipulate ideas in our mind through mathematics through experimental means uh, that we think this is all of reality and we try to then think that we can just project this on on nature but in fact you know nature has its own ideas hmm. that's that's interesting i didn't realize darwin yeah darwin had is Darwin, generally speaking, if you comp whenever Darwin has to compare uh, a, a so-called primitive human and an ape, the ape usually comes out better. <laughs> wow. So um, you, you've kind of talked about the image of God, and um, you know, and I, I heard you say in in one talk you gave um, something along the lines of of um, that hu humanity is something inherently artificial. Yeah. Yeah. So can you yeah can you explain that a little bit? Well, I mean, what I mean by artificial is kind of self-creative, right? Um, uh, and uh, and, I, and in this respect, the the our humanity is uh, if you want to say what what is it that distinguishes us from the apes? Well, it's the way we've sort of built ourselves up from the apes. Okay, mm -hmm. so whether we're talking about uh, the technologies that are most you know, that are most accessible to us. So think about writing, for example, think about all the other kinds of technologies that human beings have that extend us beyond the apes. Uh, and these, and these technologies aren't just things that are sort of developed on the spot, but are in a sense institutionalized, right? So they're, they're taught generation after generation. They have kind of autonomous, uh, development, right? So, right, you know, so it, you know, writing develops, uh, uh, and language develops in its own way independently of just running across new things in the world to put words on yeah. okay it gets its own internal development and this is true of all of the all the human inventions and what the and what that means then is we create a kind of artificial environment and we turn the and and we incorporate the world into that uh and that then you know and that's the kind of when we when we talk about when about the anthropocene right which is the the the, the world remade in the human image Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what we're talking about, and and uh, and so the more we do this, right, um, the more we remake ourselves, starting from our biological heritage, the more human we become. And so the question then becomes: Okay, by the logic of that argument, does that mean that at some point we could actually just leave our biological origins altogether and kind of upload our humanity into some more durable material form? 
mm-hmm. which is the kind of the transcendence idea, you know, right. of, of, of Ray Kurzweil and the singularity and all of this kind of stuff. But, but see, whatever you make of that, whether you think that's possible or not, that is a kind of logical step from this kind of idea that the way we become more human is by kind of creating ourselves out of our, you know, away from our biological past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by, by invoking our creativity or by, by following our creativity yeah. forward rather than a fixed set of, of things that we've had in our past. Huh. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so um, do you think there are, you know, just kind of an open-ended question, but um, what do you think that Christian transhumanists um, have to offer, if anything, to this kind of bigger conversation across our culture and, and within the transhumanist world? Um, do you think there's there's something uh, unique that we can bring to that, or, or no? Well, yes, I, I, w- I would say theology. I mean, I do think... That, you know, we're throwing around this word God a lot, and even, you know, even Zoltan can't get away from the word. Right. Okay. Um, and, and so we need to think about what is the nature of this God we're talking about, and what exactly is our relationship to this being. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, Christianity actually has lots of answers to offer, you know, uh, with regard to these matters. Um, and and this, this bears on, you know, fairly traditional Christian disciplines, at least within theology, um, you know, so one of them is uh, theodicy, right? This, you know, which is connected with this idea of providence, namely, okay, um, given that human beings are engaged in this kind of project of redemption, how do we think about the bad and good things that happen in the world? And given that science and technology are so strongly implicated in both the very good and the very bad things that happen in the world, we need some sense of what does divine justice mean, which is what, what theodicy is about. Yeah. You know, um, and then there's, of course, a field like eschatology, right? The destiny of the, of the human condition. Where are we heading? What does, you know, you know, uh, what does it, you know, what is the, what is the purpose of it all? Um, and, and again, within Christian theology, there's enormous ways of articulating this idea. Um, and I think it's very important for giving a kind of a, a kind of backdrop for making sense of things like the space arc. Yeah. Okay. Um, and indeed, I would say, I mean, we did, we haven't spoken about this, but within the Russian Orthodox tradition of transhumanism, right? There's this particular brand called cosmism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, and cosmism from the 19th century onward, it, it was one of the things that actually motivated um, the Russians to think about going into space as a way of establishing their superiority. Because if you think about it, it, it is a bit of a strange thing if you look at human history that, you know, once we start to get to the Cold War, all of a sudden the way in which a country is going to show its superiority is by trying to go to the moon. Right. <laughs> it's very strange, right? I mean, from the standpoint of world history, that's a very strange, you know, that idea had to come from somewhere. That's, right. not, that's not a straightforward extrapolation of, <laughs> of how you establish dominance in the world. Right. Right? And, and, and the point, of course, being was that, that these Russian, even again, even though the Soviet Union was officially an atheist state, nevertheless, they were very much influenced by this kind of cosmist movement, which, is, which was kind of a radical, heretical part of uh, Russian orthodoxy from the 19th century uh, onward, yeah. um, which basically, you know, would project the, uh, the, the human, would project the human um, soul, as it were, on the cosmos, and that being the moment of ultimate redemption. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's that's so true. The feeling that I that I get when I um, read a lot of these kind of secular um, transhumanist discussions is that this is theology that can't say like the next word. Like it's like you know they're 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 trying to make a statement, but the they can't complete the sentence. Basically, well, that's right. I'm, I mean, I, I think I think you would agree. Just generally, it's very difficult to talk about God in secular society, right? Right, with without in, you know offending someone or coming across as a lunatic or something like this. It's really difficult to get into a very serious conversation about God. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, um, this has been a, a very fascinating discussion, and there's uh, so many more uh, things to to uh, 
talk about and and discover. And I'm 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 like you. I'm so interested in the kind of history of of these ideas and how they've developed. So maybe we can talk about more of that uh, in the future. Okay. Um, is there anywhere that people should look up your current work and your your current book and and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I, the the uh, the thing you alluded to in the beginning, uh, the humanity 2.0 stuff. Yeah. So I've written three books in this series now. Um, so it's humanity 2.0, preparing for life in humanity 2.0, which is a, a kind of shorter version, and then this other book, the proactionary imperative, where I talk about the the politics, the upwing, downwing stuff. Uh, all of those are published by Palgrave. Um, I. Uh, I do a fair amount of uh, blogging in various places, um, including at uh, IEET, mm-hmm. which is the uh, Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, a kind of a techno-progressive uh, uh, transhumanist blog. Yeah. Uh, but, but generally speaking, I'm on Twitter as well at Prof. Steve Fuller, one word. Um, so there are all sorts of ways people can find out about me and get in touch with me. Um, I'm at the I'm professor of sociology at the University of Warwick in England. Yeah. All right. Well, that's awesome. Definitely go um, look up those books. Um, look for uh, Dr. Steve Fuller on Twitter. Um, get involved in some very interesting discussions that way. Um, but yeah, thank you, Dr. Fuller, for uh, joining us and look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thank you, Micah. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Micah here. I just wanted to say Thank you so much for listening to the show. This conversation about religion and technology and the future of humanity is something that's incredibly important to me, and I think it's incredibly important for our religious communities and our society and our world as well. So this podcast is one of the ways that I'm working to try to expand that conversation, to bring in new participants, new perspectives, and new voices. And one of the things that helps out a lot are the ratings and reviews we get on iTunes. Those really help with our visibility. They help new people to discover us, people who might not have known this kind of conversation was going on, but who might have been looking for just this sort of dialogue. So if you wanted to take a minute to jump over to iTunes and leave us a star rating or a view, comment, or note, I'd be incredibly grateful. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks for being part of this project.